The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. And now, with Patricia Raskin Positive Living, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Hello, everyone. It's the afternoon on the East Coast and the morning on the West Coast. And today, I'm Patricia Raskin, and every day, and I am I am really excited and happy to interview today Alice Dreyfus-Goldstein. She is a former research associate at Brown University's Population Studies and Training Center. She's the author of Ordinary People, Turbulent Times which is a vivid biography that deals with one of the transforming events of the 20th century during the eight years that served as a prelude to the Holocaust. We're talking about the story of spirit and faith, which enabled her family to remain optimistic and resilient during their struggle to leave Germany and make new lives for themselves in America. Welcome, Alice. Hello. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Thank you. Um you know, why do you think it's important to learn about the Holocaust? What are the lessons here? I think the basic lesson is that we really need to be careful about uh, any uh, any program or any uh, trend that disrespects human beings. Human beings are all created in, in, in God's image and um we all need to have respect for one another and to appreciate diversity. And there are too many things going on nowadays from the uh, level of children bullying other children in school to some of the much more extreme examples of, of, of killing people and genocide. We need to be able to stop that. And I think uh, the lessons from the Holocaust can help us do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess the question about how it's relevant to our lives today and the situation in the U.S., I think it's very relevant with what we see going on. Absolutely. There's just too much killing for uh, just because people hate other people for whatever reason. And I, I go to the schools a lot. I see in the schools that children bully other people because they're different. And uh, I try to tell my story and, and show them that that's very dangerous. It mm-hmm. can lead to much more serious things than just bullying in school. Isn't that how it started with the Nazis in the early years of their regime? Before they got really into it, did they some of that? Yes, um, they went at it fairly gradually, so that people got used to the idea of thinking of some segment of their population as being different and other, and not a part of the community. And once you think of people as being other than part of your community, it's easy to kick them out and to do all kinds of terrible things. So how did they do it? Did they just put them down verbally, um, that, those kinds of things? They did it in every way possible. My father, who was a good star soccer player on his 
town's team was kicked off the team because he was a Jew. Um, he couldn't play football. I was uh, kicked off the streets because I was told Jews pollute the streets. Uh, so there was a lot of verbal abuse, but it was it was backed up by um, by actual action and also by a lot of propaganda. People got used did to the idea. Them, did you know why they were doing this? Did they explain it? Uh, I, there, there are a lot of reasons. It's, it's quite complicated. Part of it was the economy in Germany was really terrible, and it was good to have a scapegoat for that. And the, the Jews were a handy scapegoat. They were visible, and they were fairly successful. And, oh, some of them were anyway. Not everybody. Certainly my parents were very modest people. But um, they, that's, that's how it started. And then they also played up the idea of uh, purity and grace, and they had this concept of a folk uh, that uh, had to be pure, and that the Germans were the best folk there the were. Ar- and, the Aryan race, right? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Did they also um, use silence? Was that part of it? The, the silence was on the part of the German population. Instead of speaking up and saying, you know, this isn't right, um, my, my father, for example, was a good football player. Why should we kick him off the team? They kept silent. And they said, well, we're good Germans, and that's more important. And so um, that by being silent, they really acquiesced in what the Nazis were doing. It's very dangerous for people to be silent in the face of injustice. Yeah. Well, and if you look at, you know, what's happening here in the U.S., you know, issues of acculturation, loss of status, you know. Oh, sure. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, uh, I, when I when I tell the story of how we came to the United States with fifteen dollars among us and only the clothes that fit into a suitcase, um, and my parents, uh, who were successful uh, middle class people in a small village, but still got a store and did well uh, and had a good life, were suddenly reduced to being servants in someone else's home, and um, it took them several years. Uh, to even be able to buy enough furniture to find a place in which to live and to furnish it for, for themselves. They buy, buy a few beds and dresses and a table and chairs. So uh, when I tell that story and, and how they struggled but always were optimistic, always believed that it would get better as long as they worked hard, um, that resonates with people. I spoke with a group of uh, women from Latin America not long ago, and they said, yes, this is very much the kind of story that we have as well. Hmm. What was it like for you, Alice? You were a small child. And what was it like for you to feel the impact of the anti-Semitism on the part of the Nazis? Well, uh, I was protected as much as possible by my parents, but I was always exposed to it the minute I stepped into this public sphere. As I said, I was chased off the street. But also, even as a little child, when I went with my grandmother to buy ice cream, I was not allowed to go into the store because I was a Jew. There was a big sign on the front of the store that Jews were not allowed. And uh, it meant that after I was about four years old, I could never buy ice cream again. Um, Now, that's not a big deal, perhaps, but for a little girl it is. And it must have been traumatic for me because I remember it so well. I also remember uh, taking walks with my grandfather and coming to a public fountain and having seen a sign on the fountain that says, Jews are not allowed to drink here. And that resonated and uh, particularly made me very conscious of uh, the Jim Crow laws and the, uh, made me very much part of the civil rights movement 
back in the 60s. I mean, you were, you were young then, but did you, was there talk of people, of Jewish people rebelling? Did you hear any of that? People who were defiant, or did you not know? Uh, the, the only person I knew who was defiant was my uncle, uh, my father's youngest brother, who uh, apparently was very outspoken, and the family was very frightened that all of us would get into trouble. So there was a lot of fear that kept Jews from uh, really um, speaking out more or doing anything more because the, the Nazis had such enormous power and power mm-hmm. over everybody else. Uh, what and happened then there was, with your uncle, by the way? Pardon me? What happened with your uncle? Oh, he, he, he finally he escaped. Uh, he crossed the border into France um, clandestinely and uh, ended up in, in France and was put by the French into the Foreign Legion uh, and was sent to North Africa with the Foreign Legion, and, and there he was actually captured by Rommel and the uh, German forces and was forced as a slave laborer to help build a railroad in North Africa, and then was liberated by the Allies when they invaded, and eventually ended up with the Free French Army helping to liberate Paris. Wow. So he had quite a story. What a story. Yeah. What, how has this, um, how has this impacted you now? I mean, now you're a grandmother. And how has this impacted you throughout your life? And, and what is it you want to teach your grandchildren? Well, I think one of the reasons that I, I wrote my book was because I wanted to be sure that my grandchildren were familiar with the story. I'd always been telling them little pieces of it, but I wanted them to know that um, even very ordinary people uh, who, who were just minding their own business and going about their life uh, as best they could uh, can be victims. Of, uh, of, a, of a racist purge, and I wanted them to be sure to be sensitive to that. I wanted yeah. them to, to know that you have to be vigilant all the time and, and to speak out. How did your family leave? Uh, we were fortunate. We had started applying for uh, visas to the United States. That seemed to be the best choice for us because so few countries would take anybody, and the United States was quite restrictive. But um, we had applied beginning in 1930, early 1937, and were uh, stonewalled for quite a long time. But finally, in um, early 1939, after my father had been in concentration camp in Dachau and released, um, by May of 1939, we finally got a visa from the United States. And then we had to go through all the hoops that the Germans put up to uh, make it difficult to get out, but we were able to um, find a boat that left Germany on August um, 13th, uh, August 15th of 1939, and it came, it crossed the Atlantic in a very um, zigzag fashion because they were afraid that the Germans might torpedo passenger ships. But we were finally able to leave with just a suitcase and $15 and landed in New York on August 28th, which was just three days before the war broke out. Amazing. So well, I've always thought of it as a, as a miracle. Lucky, But how did your father get out of the camp? Usually that's not so easy. Yes. No, it wasn't easy, but the, the uh, Nazis realized that they had a, a rather untenable situation in Dachau because they had suddenly uh, put in, after Kristallnacht, they had... Uh, deported um, thousands of Jewish men into the camp, which was already overcrowded, and they were afraid that it might um, it might uh, stimulate some riots uh, 
if enough people were um, uh, tense enough and, and daring enough to do that. So they they said that Jews who were trying to get out of the United, out of uh, Germany, to make Germany Judengein, clean of Jews, would be able to be released from the camp as long as they then proceeded to leave Germany. And so my mother was able to go to the Gestapo and show them the documents that we had uh, trying to well, get a visa. We're lucky. Now that wouldn't have happened a few years after that, right? When the war no. started. No. After you the war really started. Lucky, Alice. Pardon me. You were really lucky. We were incredibly Timing. lucky. Timing. Uh, it was it really, it, you know, so much of survival during the Holocaust was a matter of luck. And just being in the right place at the right time. Mm. But it's interesting because, as you said, when you arrived in the United States, the war had just started. And at that point, they figured it all out. So they wouldn't have allowed Jews to leave the, the camps. Some, some, well, I don't know if how many got out of camps, uh, but they, some Jews were able to leave after that. But uh, very erratically, the, the boat we were on was the last passenger line to leave on schedule. Mm. After mm. that, it was much more erratic. And my grandparents never got out. They were deported to France, to concentration camps in France, in October of 1940. Mm. So massive deportations, even of German Jews, began quite soon after the war began. Mm. Now, was your family a religious family in terms of being kosher and having certain dietary laws? Yes. In, in, in the village where we lived, we were very observant. And we, in fact, even the store that my father had inherited from his father, who had inherited it from his father, uh, was closed on Saturdays for the Sabbath. And someone in the village told me uh, when I went back um, a few years ago that everybody in the village was also always very uh, envious of our family because we had Saturdays off and we could sit in front of the store and visit with each other and enjoy uh, the quiet of the Sabbath, whereas the farmers had to work seven days a week. Fascinating. So, that was a huge change for you when you came to our country. Could you keep Could you keep the Sabbath and could you keep the dietary no. laws? No, we couldn't keep any almost anything. Um, we were living with a non non observant non Jewish family for uh, the first uh, couple of years. And uh, there was no way that we could keep the dietary laws or my parents had to work on the Sabbath. Um, I did go to um, Hebrew school uh, occasionally, and uh, my parents did try to keep uh, the Jewish New Year and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, but that was, that was all we were able to do. So it was, it was a huge change for us and, and very, I'm sure very disturbing to my parents. How old are you, Alice? How old am I now? How old were you then? Oh, I was eight when mm. we came over. Mm. 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 And, you know, and even here there was a good deal of anti-Semitism. Uh, when I, uh, when I finally learned to read English, I, I devoured books and I, w I joined the library in a, in a, a kind of a contest to see how many books children could read. We wrote little reviews and got gold stars for it. And I was told to be careful not to win the contest, that it wouldn't be appropriate for a Jewish child to do that. Really? Yeah. Because they were afraid oh. the same thing would happen here that happened in Germany? Well, no, they were, no, the, the Christians didn't want Jews to be on top of things. They were trying to hold Jews into their, in their place. Mm -hmm. Even here? Was, oh, yes. There was a lot of anti-Semitism here, so... Yeah. yeah. 
How do you think, um, Alice, how do you think this affected you as a child? Uh, I think it made me um, fairly timid. I didn't, I, I learned not to stand out, to be uh, invisible, because if you were invisible, you couldn't get in trouble with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned uh, to be um, invisible and also not to trust people. Uh, all the children who used to be my friends in my village uh, suddenly stopped being my friends. They disappeared. And so I learned very early that you couldn't trust people and friends weren't really friends. That they, how they did you, stand up how did, for you? How did that change for you in your life in terms of developing trust? Very, very slowly. Mm. It took me many, many years, and I think it wasn't until I was married that I actually felt that I could trust other people and could open up to other people. I had very, very few friends in school, no friends in elementary school at all, and a couple in high school, but just barely. Did you marry an American man or a German man? I did. No, I married an American. We always laugh because we say it's a mixed marriage. (laughs) But, a Jewish uh, man. Locally, Connecticut one. We grew up in the same town in New London, Connecticut, and I went to school with his brother. Right. And he didn't have any, any family in Germany? He didn't have any of that? Uh, no, his mother had uh, many family members in Lithuania who were killed during the Holocaust, mm. but no, none that he knew directly. Right. So what are you teaching? What did you teach your children, Alice? What what did you what were some of the really strong tenets of what you taught your children and also that extends to your grandchildren now? Right. Well, first of all, I mean, I, I I'm a strong Jew and I have taught my children also to value Judaism and 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 the values of Judaism and that that one of the the most important is that you have to really respect everyone else that there's always some good in people. There are obviously there's a, a few exceptions, but you give people the, the benefit of the doubt, and you try to um, to be as open to change and to accept other cultures and to learn about other cultures, and to realize that they also have a lot to teach us, and uh, and, and that the uh, diversity is really important and it's good. Mm. Do you have a story, maybe from the book, or a story that's inspirational and that maybe was a turning point in your life in terms of trust or reaching out or any story that really stands oh, out? Probably not, not a story in the book, but there is, there's one story that really stands out in my mind and it has to do with my mother. When we finally uh, got a place of our own, it was a third floor flat. And um, it was, you had to go up the back stairs to get to it. Uh, but it was ours. And um, people would very seldom come knocking at the door for to collect. Um, this was in the days when they went door to door to collect for charity. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day, a uh, an African American preacher came up the stairs to collect for his church. And my parents had, you know, my father was making I know nothing. He was working as a as a night watchman at the time. So he was making minimal wages, and this was at the beginning of the war in the very early 40s. And so we had almost nothing for ourselves. My mother gave him a dollar, and she told me afterwards, she said, you know, if he has, the, he needs the money enough to have to come up the third floor and the back stairs, I would never turn him down. Mm. 
And so that's a lesson I'll never forget. And do you think that that, you have um, carried that on in your life with people? I have tried. I, I, you know, I, I'm not great, but I, I try to be open and to be as generous as I can. And I've taught my children to do the same. Hope they do. Yeah, they're on their own now. So, and what about your grandchildren? Uh, our grandchildren also. They, I think they're all in in interested in areas that are giving areas that help help to make the, the world a better place, and that's what I want. I want them to be uh, conscious of the fact that it's up to us to really make the world a better place. And nobody else is going to do it for us. Mm. And I think they, that they, they've really learned that. Now, you also do some teaching, yes? I, I teach in the schools. I teach my story. I teach about the Holocaust. I teach about the lessons of the Holocaust, yeah. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? So I, I find you, it, it very uh, very gratifying because... Um, I, it, there, oh, every so often somebody will come up and said, you know, I never looked at it in that particular way and you've really opened my eyes and um, I, now I really understand what it means to be other and how awful that is. Well, and, you know, and I, again, I mean, I think, you know, you were lucky in that you were born just before this really started in full force in yeah. terms of the, the Holocaust. So you were very lucky as Absolutely. you said, in that time, and also to get out. Yes. Also. Oh, I'm very conscious of that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk up a little bit about, we have a couple minutes left, talk a little bit about Kristallnacht and, and where, when that was and how that plays in here. Okay. That that occurred in November of 1938, and it, it, was, a, it was a horrific time because the Nazis uh, tried to destroy all the synagogues in Germany and to smash up all of the stores. Uh, just doing all of the Jewish businesses. So my father was the only Jewish business in our little village of a thousand people and had no Jewish institutions at all. But the Nazis came in anyway, and they um, they they sort of revved up the population uh, to by marching in the streets with all of the school children singing Nazi songs and anti-Semitic songs. Mm-hmm. And my parents were huddled in the house and behind their locked doors. But that night. Um, a group of men came in. They went to the first floor where my parents lived above the store. First of all, they smashed up the store and threw everything out into the street in a big heap. Then they went up to the third floor to my parents' apartment. My mother was a pianist. They took all of her sheet music, a lot of show tunes and some classical music. They threw it out the window. They threw all the books my parents had out the window. They put it all into a big heap, and they set it on fire, and they kept that fire going most of the night. And nobody in that town who were supposedly great friends of the family, who had known the family for three generations, who had gone to school with my father and his brothers, and who were great buddies, not one of them came over and said, we'll try to help you, and we'll stand by you. They all closed their shutters and shut their doors and stayed out of sight. And, and were, so, you, were you there? Did you see all this? I was not. I was living with my grandparents because I was not allowed to go to public school. And so my parents had to send me to live with my grandparents in a nearby city um, where there was a Jewish school for Jewish children. And my mother had to come and get me on the train a couple of days later. But oh. there were still messes in the street, you know, broken glass from the store window and so on. My she father was gone because he had been... been heartbroken about her music. Pardon me? 
She must have been heartbroken about her music. Music she is never something. played the piano again after that night. Not really? once. I, hmm? Really? Yeah, it was it was so traumatic for her. I mean, it, that really I think was sort of the final straw. And uh, even once we got to the United States, where there was occasion for, where there were pianos available, she never wanted to play. That well, that did yeah. it for her. Uh, yeah, I think I it can, really I broke her. Because uh, my mother was was a musician, and her music was very dear to her. Yeah, and it's like a child. Yep. And I can just imagine it's your work, it's your creative art. It's like, yeah, that, that's, well, you know, Alice, you're here to tell this and to teach others. That's oh, and, and, I'm, I'm you know, very grateful that, that I am. If you know, if you want to, if you want to be spiritual and esoteric about this, I mean, you could say a Hebrew word for, the Hebrew word for God is Hashem. So you could yeah. say Hashem brought you in on purpose early so you could come here and you could, you could really teach people about <laughs> what happened. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, that's how we right. do it here on positive right. thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely positive. My mother was always positive. She said, you know, no matter what happens, Dale, something good will eventually come of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a lesson I took to heart also. So we were always optimists. Well, and it worked. Despite everything. How yeah. can people find your book? Uh, it's on Amazon. All right, and I want to let people know my guest has been, it's very inspirational, Alice Dreyfus Goldstein. Her book is Ordinary People, Turbulent Times, and it's really about her life uh, in rural southwest Germany before Hitler came to power or as he was coming to power, and it's a vivid biography that deals with one of the transforming events of the 21st century as happened throughout Germany during the eight years that served to the prelude to the Holocaust. And the Nazis turned the Dreyfus family members who valued friends and colleagues into an isolated, demonized minority. And Alice felt the anti-Semitism. But her story is, is about spirit and faith, which enabled her family to remain optimistic and resilient during their struggle to leave Germany and to make new lives for themselves in America. Thanks so much for being on the program, Alice. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. Again, thank you. Stay on the line for a minute. Okay. All right, folks, um, this wraps up Patricia Raskin Positive Living. Write to me, Patricia, at patriciaraskin.com. And remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin, right here on Voice America, America's Voice. Bye for now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.